Greetings and welcome to Lectures in Comparative Government and Politics. My name is Daniel Lazar. Thank you so much for joining me. It is my humble privilege and my pleasure to do my part to support you in your pursuit of comparative government and politics. The lecture I'm giving today, I'm calling the One China Myth, Xinjiang, Tibet, and Hong Kong. Before I get too far into my thesis and our path, I want you to know that the lecture I'm giving has a PowerPoint presentation that I've developed to support the lecture. It is up to you whether you want to have the PowerPoint on hand and refer to it occasionally. It's up to you whether you want to go along with the PowerPoint slide for slide. But I have, for lack of a more creative solution, this. That is the sound of my daughter's triangle when she was an infant, and she doesn't seem to want to get rid of it. So we still have it, and I, well, finally found a purpose for it. Today, and perhaps today only, its purpose will be to indicate that I am moving on to a slide. So if you are following along with this podcast slide by slide, You will hear this, and you can go on to the next slide. I don't know if it's necessarily better to follow along. I will say that there is a lot of powerful uh, imagery, some of which might be too powerful now that I'm thinking about it. I guess this should be my trigger warning. There are some nasty images that I'm going to show, but we're dealing with some real nasty politics here in China. So decide whether you want to go along with the PowerPoint. Do I recommend it? Uh, Probably. I recommend at the very least that you feast your eyes on the PowerPoint presentation. All right, so let's dive in to the meat of this thing. Again, we're calling this the one China myth. We're going to look into Xinjiang, Tibet, and Hong Kong, and we're going to do it in that order. I just moved from the cover slide. Here's a guiding thought, and it's something like a thesis statement. So China has struggled for a long time for internal sovereignty. But as the world cautiously watches the rise of China, and we're all watching China, some of us fearfully, some of us hopefully, I think those of us who actually think about China in a serious way, we have both hopes and fears for and about China. But since the world is watching China, the Communist Party of China faces its complexities and its contradictions on the global stage. So the premise here, to put it another way, is that China has always had an internal sovereignty struggle. But China wasn't always aspiring for global dominance the way China seems to be doing now. And so because we have so many sets of eyes on the complexities and contradictions of China, we're seeing some of China's internal sovereignty issues through new lenses. Often oblivious and usually insensitive to the hopes and the needs of ethnic minorities, the People's Republic of China claims they are Zhongyou Ren, 
which is to say Chinese people with universal values. If you happen to speak Chinese, allow me to apologize in advance for what I'm sure will be hundreds, if not thousands, of mispronunciation of Chinese words. Sorry, I'm just no good like that. I rarely even pronounce words properly in my native tongue. So the point is that though the People's Republic of China claims that they have universal values, they don't. And I will try to illustrate that. I will also try to prove that what casual observers perceive to be one China is not one China. China is a very fragmented society bound by what I'm calling the crushing chains of the Chinese Communist Party. So a student had recommended, as I was starting to think about how to create a lecture podcast, that I put the questions up front. So I have for you here a half a dozen guiding questions. The first is kind of straightforward. We're going to be looking at different special autonomous regions. Tibet is a special autonomous region in China, as is Xinjiang. We're going to be looking at those. We're also going to be looking at a special economic zone uh, in today's lecture that's going to be Hong Kong. And so we want to define what these are and how special autonomous regions and special economic zones are complicated by what I'm calling the history of humiliation of China. All right. We're also going to try to answer this question of how the People's Republic of China can cope with its diversity, its cumulative cleavages, and the relative deprivation that keeps on growing in China. I mean, China is getting decidedly richer, but the rich are getting magnificently richer. And the poor, though they are getting richer, are not getting richer at the same rate and with the same benefits. So how can the People's Republic of China deal with this? A third question is how might China have a more valid claim to exercise authority over some special autonomous regions and over some special economic zones than others? A fourth question is what the future might hold for special autonomous regions and special economic zones. I'll try to give you uh, some history. I'll try to summarize for you the current state of play. But it's worth thinking about the potential futures for these special regions of China. A fifth question is how can or how should the international community react to China's sovereignty conundra? I'm going to call them conundra. I don't know if that's right, but I like it more. So how can the international community react? Like, like what is in the realm of the possible? And then there's the should question, which has maybe some moral or ethical undertones, which, of course, opens up a whole Pandora's box, which I'm not going to dive too far into at all here, but I will raise the question. And then lastly, the final guiding question, how do these ethno-religious conflicts compare with conflicts in other course case studies that we have in AP Comparative Government, I will try to uh, make some comparisons. Uh, we have studied the United Kingdom and Russia. We're going to study Iran, Nigeria, and Mexico. I would ask you to consider this last question, perhaps above all else, 
if for no other reason than our class is called Comparative Government and Politics, I am reasonably certain that as I'm giving this lecture, I'm going to uh, forget to make comparisons. I might make a couple half-hearted comparisons. I know that when I'm done doing this, I'll be like, oh, I wish I would have made this or that comparison. So please do think as comparatively as you can when listening along. Could you hear that? You had to have heard that. All right. So the one China myth, if you have the PowerPoint up, uh, you'll see two images. One is an image taken at a train station in China where you have a whole bunch of presumably Chinese people, or at least most of them are Chinese. But what you see is a sort of beautiful diversity of different Chinese faces, different hair textures, different skin tones, different cheek lines. And there's this no notion that Chinese people are Chinese. And of course, I'm giving this lecture from Germany, and I'm not quite sure that there's such a thing as Germany. I've been here, I would say, just long enough to realize that there's not a whole lot connecting the Bavarian to the Brandenburger, the, the Saxon, the, the Dusseldorfer. There's a common language, and you know we could have this debate. Let's not. Not here. Not when I'm by myself. I don't want to have this debate by myself in front of you. But um, there's 80 or so million Germans, and there's a lot of diversity here. And what it means to be German means different things to different people. And Germany is a pretty small country by comparison to China. China has a huge landmass with a virtual pantheon of different cultures and subcultures. And maybe from a Western context, uh, from, a, from a European context, there's something called the Chinese person. I know when I went to China, you know, I, I thought I would see <laughs> China. And then I got there and I realized I saw nothing. So I went back and I went back again. And I still feel like I haven't even begun to see China. And so maybe we should just put it this way. It stands to reason that it's worth at least questioning the idea of a place called China where people are called Chinese people. Yeah? And if you look at these images that I have in the slide, it becomes overwhelmingly clear that there is a lot of diversity in China. There are a lot of different cultures and traditions. And that is, of course, a source of great strength. Diversity is a source of strength. It is, of course, perhaps paradoxically, a source of potential conflict. And I'm afraid it is today the conflict that we are going to be diving into. So about 92% of China's 1.4 billion people are ethnically Han. And there's two ways to look at that number. The first is like, wow, that's really homogenous, right? Most people, the overwhelming majority of people who are Chinese citizens are ethnically Han. The other way to look at that is that means that there's 128 million non-Han people. So like one and a half times the population of Germany are non-Han. 
And within those 128 million, you have 56 official ethnic groups. Okay. Among those, the most populous are the Zhuang, then the Manchu, the Hui, the Miao, and then the Uyghurs. The Uyghurs comprise 8 million of that 56 million. So one in seven, there's my math, huh? Not bad. One in seven ethnic minorities in China are Uyghurs. And that's what we're going to be talking about first. And there are 3 million Tibetans of those 56, and we'll talk about Tibet second. I should also mention that while there are 56 official ethnic groups, there are hundreds of ethnic groups who aren't recognized by the Chinese Communist Party and thus the Chinese government. Now, um, to say China is big is going to be the understatement of the day. Let's hope that that's the understatement of the day. It is big and it is geographically diverse. Of course, geography is not destiny. But we see here, if we're looking along, that about 94% of the population of China is in the eastern one-third of its land. So you have out west, what they sometimes call the wild, wild west of China, you have a lot of this ethnic diversity. I've also included for you a climate map of China, and you have basically every type of climate that we see on Earth in China. Now, um, I should say, just by way of comparison, this is not dissimilar to the Russian Federation, where a disproportionate amount of Russians live on the western third, and the far reaches of Russia are, in some ways, virtually ungovernable. And that's what we're seeing uh, in the far western reaches of China, these regions that were, until recently, virtually ungovernable. And of course, with transportation and communication and the increasing wealth of the Chinese government, there are more possibilities to govern the far-reaching regions of Western China. So geography isn't destiny, but it does matter. The overwhelming majority of Chinese people are ethnically Han, but there's still a lot, you know, a lot of non-Han people. And it's those people who will be concerned most with today. There are five special autonomous regions in China, and I've given a map of them for you here. There's Tibet and Xinjiang. That's what we'll be talking about today. There's also Ninja, uh, Inner Mongolia, and Guangxi, and we won't be talking about those. There is also the special economic zone of Hong Kong, and we'll talk about that last. So when we're talking about these autonomous regions in China, uh, it's worth noting that they are beautiful. This is some of the most beautiful land on earth. Tibet will make cynical people spiritual, and it might just make spiritual people religious. Tibet is really something. It's gorgeous. It's also resource-rich. A lot of hydropower, a lot of minerals. And China, for, you know, obvious reasons, wants to take advantage of the resources on their land. And that goes a long way to explaining some of the problems that we'll learn about today. However resource-rich and beautiful some of these far western and far northern regions are, 
they are not as wealthy as the rest of China. The GNP per capita is about half the national average. They're less developed. And everything's changing. Deng Xiaoping opened up the dialogue with these special administrative regions. Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao prioritized development. I will show you some data about how much these regions have developed. Xi Jinping, as is his want, is demanding discipline in regions like Tibet and Xinjiang. And we will watch that play out. So let's get to Xinjiang, the Xinjiang Autonomous Region. We'll start with just some important facts. Its capital is Urumqi. It is about one-sixth of China's territory, so it's a big chunk of China. It is its largest province. It is four times larger than Germany. All right, so maybe we should just pause there for a second. Um, it's possible that you've not heard of Urumqi. It's possible that you've not heard of the Uyghur Autonomous Region but it's four times larger than Germany. There are 22 million people that live there, so it's not particularly overpopulated, put it that way. And you have in that land natural gas and oil. Xinjiang is unique. Of the 22 million people that live there, 12 million of them are Muslims, so that's about half of the Chinese Muslim population. They speak or want to speak it's becoming harder with each passing day. An Arabic-rooted language, a Turkic language, in fact. Um, it is a, a desert. I have some images here for you of you know what looks very much like a desert, like people riding camels through the desert. You know, I think when you think of China, you don't think about camels in the desert, but China is large and contains multitudes. There's also an image of a beautiful Chinese mosque in Urumqi. And um, I don't think you probably think of mosques when you think of China. Um, in Xinjiang, you have a population that's about 45% Han and growing every day, 41% Uyghurs, and about 7% Kazakhs. That is changing. I will show you how that's changing quite profoundly as everything is changing in China. So just some fun facts about China, which are maybe a little more than just fun facts. Uh, Urumqi is the geographical center point of Asia. It is the belly button of Asia. So when you're talking about Central Asia in like sort of like a mathematical geographical way, Urumqi is the precise center. So in terms of trade and uh, development, you could see why Urumqi, there might be a bit of a future for it, which is part of the reason why China feels obliged to clamp down on it. Yili is one of five of the Xinjiang prefectures. So uh, one of the prefectures is Urumqi, the capital, and then there are four others. This prefecture alone, Yili, shares a 2,000-kilometer border with Mongolia, Russia, and Kazakhstan. So just one of the five prefectures shares a border with three countries, one of which, very importantly, is Russia, and Kazakhstan is increasingly important in the Central Asia power game. And just a last fun fact. The Han in Xinjiang tend to use Beijing time. Right? China's on one time zone. The Uyghurs, as a form of rebellion, tend to use Xinjiang time. 
And so when you ask someone what time it is in Xinjiang, it can be kind of a loaded question. And I don't know exactly how that plays out culturally, of course, if there were space for free reporting. Uh, I think I could get a better sense of how that works out. But it's just an interesting, we'll call it fun fact. So I want to dive into some of the history of Xinjiang. And of course, I should postulate here that I am not anything close to expert in this field. Um, I know sort of painfully little about it. But let me share with you a little of the little that I know. All right. And we should begin here. This history is very, very disputed history. I mean, all history is disputed history. And the history of uh, Xinjiang, both in the short and the long term, is rather vexed. There were nomadic Turkic tribes that settled parts of Xinjiang. It uh, was under Mongolian rule for a long time. And the Qing dynasty, the Chinese Qing dynasty, uh, 1644 to 1912, took over what is more or less Xinjiang now. It became a province of China in 1884, and the goal of the Qing dynasty was to integrate and to educate and to uplift and civilize the quote-unquote savage Turkic people, all right? In the age of imperialism, right? Like in the same year that the Berlin Conference took place where Western European leaders carved up Africa, China used its comparatively weaker diplomatic and military ranks to take Xinjiang uh, from the Mongolians. But of course, in 1912, in part because the Qing dynasty wasn't so powerful at all, like all Chinese dynasties, it got fat, old, lazy, and indolent. It refused to modernize and engage in global economies and be innovative. Of course, there's a whole history there. And if you've taken classes with me, I've walked you through some of that history. But for various reasons, which aren't in the purview of this lecture, the Qing dynasty fell and the Republic of China was established in 1912. Right? And as the world careened from crisis to crisis... Very shortly thereafter, right, 1912, two years later, you have the First World War, and then you have the problems of the 20s and the 30s and the Second World War, and then the early years of the Cold War. In these decades, you have a lot of turmoil in Xinjiang, and it's turmoil that is engendered by the age of nationalism. Right? So Germany becomes a country in 1871, and Italy becomes a country in 1860, and all of these countries that were formerly of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, right? they all become countries, and you have Czechoslovakia, and you have Hungary, and in the age of nationalism, you have a nationalist movement in far western China. And you have thus the establishment of the unrecognized first East Turkestan Republic. 
It was established in 1933. It was attacked by the Kuomintang, the Nationalist Army, in 1934. And the KMT, they had all of the guns. They had all of the funding. And this first effort to create an independent East Turkestan, an independent Muslim Republic out of what was Mongolian and later Chinese rule failed. And then coming out of the Second World War, you have another attempt at independence. Uh, It became known as the Second East Turkestan Republic, again unrecognized, um, didn't get a whole lot of attention in light of all of the turmoil and desperation after the Second World War. But the Soviet Union supported East Turkestani independence. Um, and then after the Chinese communists won the Chinese Civil War in 1949, uh, the Soviets showed no uh, real interest in East Turkestan, choosing instead to ally themselves for as long as they could. It ended up being you know, about a decade with the Chinese communists. During this time, the Uyghurs were about 80% of the population, right? So on the eve of the People's Republic of China, Uyghurs were 80% of the population. And as I told you just a moment ago, they're only about 40% now. So what we've seen is this massive infiltration or Hanification of what rebels would call East Turkestan. In 1955, as a way to try to quell tensions, the People's Republic of China, again, the now communist China, offered Xinjiang province autonomy. They became one of these autonomous regions. And to try to get... Uyghurs on their side, the Chinese Communist Party built state-owned enterprises in order to, you know, em- employ people and to build the economy there and to build friends and allies and connections in Xinjiang. In addition to building state-owned enterprises, they also built prison camps, as was the way of the Chinese Communist Party, and I'm afraid is very much still the way and the resurging trend in the Chinese Communist Party. Why did the Chinese communists build these state-owned enterprises? Why did they build the prison camps? Why did they show this deep interest in Xinjiang? Well, first and foremost, they wanted their borders to be secure. You know, they didn't trust the Soviet communists for all of the right reasons, I presume. Uh, They knew that they were dealing with a complicated Western border. And so they wanted to secure that border. And they wanted to secure that border because they wanted the resources on that land. And the way to conquer those resources and secure that border was to send ethnically Han people into Xinjiang province. And that led to a massive refugee situation in Xinjiang, 
A lot of Uyghurs had just had to get out of there. They didn't feel safe, and they weren't safe. A lot of Uyghurs who stayed through this Han infiltration, they suffered mightily. They suffered through Mao's Great Leap Forward. They suffered through the Hundred Flowers campaign. But most notably, they suffered from 1966 to 76 during Mao's Cultural Revolution, which aimed to destroy all old customs and habits and manners and traditions. And while it's true that Mao's psychopathic focus on destroying the old customs, habits, manners, and traditions of Buddhist and Confucian Chinese was the centerpiece of his reign of terror, he was also seeking to destroy Muslims or, if we're to be honest, any subsection of the Chinese population that dare question his totalitarian authority. So Mao dies in 1976, and Deng Xiaoping, in his ways, opened things up a bit. He opened up some space for dialogue, um, not unlike the way that Gorbachev opened up some space for dialogue in the 1980s in the Soviet Union. Of course, the difference being that after Gorbachev opened up that dialogue, the Soviet Union teetered and stumbled and fell pathetically and in plain public view. It was a resounding humiliation, a humiliation of a country that spent much of the 19th and 20th centuries being humiliated, and a humiliation that Vladimir Putin is very mindful of most days. And it's a humiliation that China seeks to not emulate. But there were, nevertheless, efforts to open up, and Deng Xiaoping can be credited with those. And one of these was the Regional Ethnic Autonomy Law of 1984. And this gave rights to minorities. It gave them the right to self-government and the freedom to develop their own language and religion and culture. It gave ethnic minorities more control over their economic development. And while the Regional Ethnic Autonomy Law of 1984 wasn't particularly well enforced, such are the nature of laws in countries without rule of law, it did give the Uyghurs the opportunity to be classified as national minorities and to get more self-government. However, it didn't give Uyghurs the right to be determined as an indigenous group. If they were given the classification of an indigenous group, they would have had more rights, they would have had more freedoms and more self-government but because they're classified as a national minority as opposed to as an indigenous group, the land is seen as no more special to them than it is to a Han quote-unquote infiltrator. Now, Han development and the Han infiltration has had uh, cascading and many painful effects on the Uyghur ethnic group. But to be fair... In Xinjiang, agricultural science has increased output on that land. More Uyghurs have more food. You have uh, these amazing road and train construction projects, which, look, uh, it's called development. Having roads and having trains uh, increases people's wealth. It increases their access to worldly goods, their access to medicine and to education and to health care. 
If you want, we could debate it, but generally these are seen to be good things. Yeah. And it is in fact the case that in Xinjiang province per capita, the residents have more access to doctors and to immunizations and to hospital beds than the average person in the People's Republic of China has. And the PRC has made all of these Herculean efforts to quote unquote develop Xinjiang because they want the Uyghurs in Xinjiang to be loyal. They want them to feel that they're reaping the benefits of being part of China. So I have this table, and if you're looking along, we see that from 1949 until 2013, we have fantastic leaps in schooling. You had 1,335 primary schools in 1949. You have 6,200 now. So you're like a fourfold increase in primary schools. You had nine middle schools in all of Xinjiang in 1949, and you have just shy of 2,000 of them now. Yeah? You had one university in 1949, and you have 21 now. You had zero public libraries. You have 81 now. You had zero museums. You have 23 now. The illiteracy rate in Xinjiang was at 45% in 1949. And while this number is highly contested, the Chinese Communist Party says that illiteracy rate is 2%. Um, I've seen other data saying it's more like 20%, but the illiteracy rate has been reduced substantially. Now, we would be remiss not to choose to at least question what exactly is being taught and read and celebrated and commemorated at these schools and libraries and museums. Surely, the One China mantra echoes through the halls of the schools the notion of Chinese people with universal values must be the theme at most museums. The libraries are as selective, if not even more selective, in rewriting history through a CCP lens. And all of that is worth much investigation. And here I am doing my job to at least plant that seed and invite that investigation. Now, these are real gains. And to some extent, and I have to leave it up to you to determine the extent, to some extent, we have to applaud the People's Republic of China and its Communist Party for helping to develop Xinjiang province. More people have more opportunities. But as we'll see here, it comes at a substantial price. And one price is the ability to express culture and language freely. Here's a graph of GDP uh, from 2007 to 2018. Um, GDP per capita in Xinjiang has gone up something like uh, fourfold. Yeah. And here is some data of, of a bunch of different provinces. And at the bottom, you see Tibet and Xinjiang. The 27 GDP per capita in Tibet is 6,200. It's 7,200 per capita in Xinjiang. And so the GDP per capita is lower in Tibet and Xinjiang than much of the rest of China. 
But the growth rate in Tibet and Xinjiang is just unbelievable. We're talking 10, 11, 12% growth per year, year after year after year. And, you know, more people in Xinjiang have education, they have access to healthcare, they have cars, they have laundry machines and dishwashers. This is great stuff. Try living without it. You know, try living without healthcare. Try living, try living without a dishwasher. It's a nightmare, trust me. All right. So you got a lot of benefits. Yeah. But there's a real wicked dark side to this all. The Uyghur population is being systematically, and I use that word carefully, systematically repressed. There is this process of Hanification of Xinjiang. About a quarter million Han come. Many of them settle every year. And a lot of the Han have better jobs. They have jobs because a lot of these jobs are clientelistic in nature, where the people who are members of the Chinese Communist Party are first in line to get the jobs. Yeah. Uyghurs are systematically discriminated against. And a lot of them, to be sure, they want to become part of like mainstream Chinese society. You know, there are a lot of Uyghurs to whom, you know, their religious faith doesn't mean so much or they don't see any discrepancy between their religious faith and their desire to be rich. Yeah. They want to reap the benefits of living in a China that's becoming increasingly wealthy. But the Han are making that hard for them. You have an increasing problem of relative deprivation. You know, as we recall, relative deprivation is this notion that wealth, while we can measure it in absolute terms is maybe more powerful sometimes when viewed through the lens of relativity, right? So if everybody's poor, nobody's poor. And that was the case in Xinjiang for a long time. But now you have more Audis on the streets and BMWs and Prada purses and Gucci and, you know, rich people who are disproportionately Han and you have a native population, I guess we can't say an indigenous population, but an indigenous population. And they're not able to enjoy the same benefits. They are not getting rich as quickly and in as great of numbers as our ethnically Han citizens. And so a cumulative cleavage is emerging were ethnically Han, maybe we can call them settlers, ethnically Han settlers, are getting extraordinarily rich, and they're getting extraordinarily rich on the backs of Uyghurs and Kazakhs and other ethnic minorities in Xinjiang. And in the process of getting rich, they are repressing Uyghur culture, which ethnically Han people tend to see as uncivilized and detrimental to mainstream Chinese values. Look, these are Chinese people hating on Chinese people. These are Han people who believe that 
Uyghurs and Kazakhs are fundamentally flawed in their worldview, that they're backwards. And, and, and in some cases, they think they're backwards and they can't be saved. And the bellwether of this is the role of Islam. China is an officially atheistic state. Uyghur Muslims were allowed to, for a long time, practice their religion in peace and quietly, and with the major exception of the Cultural Revolution, more or less unscathed. It was probably never easy. But as more and more Han come to Xinjiang, it becomes increasingly hard to practice Islam. Mosques get shut down. Uh, you know, police assaults on mosques. Uh, there were three stories where the mosques were filled with pigs, uh, which are seen by people of the Islamic faith to be filthy and um, a violation of halal. So you have this sort of like Han terrorism, if you want to call it that. The Uyghur language is discouraged. You could end up getting bullied or harassed in the streets by Han people who have disproportionate power for speaking your native tongue. If you're wearing clothing or adornments that might out you as a Muslim, you run the risk of being harassed. And you surely run the risk of not getting the job or getting the you know, the contract or getting the benefit from state and local governments. Yeah. It is indeed illegal to refer to East Turkestan or Uyghurstan in the press. Yeah. Like literally illegal. So much for the hope of the East Turkestan Republic. Scholars and journalists who want to report on the harassment or want to write about the history of Xinjiang are persecuted. And we have to remember that that persecution isn't just about them oftentimes. Imagine the world where, you know, a, a journalist wants to do their job and yeah, I mean, they could you know, fall on the sword and get thrown in jail or whatever, but that might mean that their, their kid's not going to get fed you can have a scholar who wants to write a book about the East Turkestan Republic and they could get that book published, but by publishing that book, it means that their kid's not going to get into the high school they want them to get into or the university they want them to get into. The police are likely to come to your house to give you a little visit for writing about police brutality or about Han corruption. But if you're not home... Don't think they'll necessarily leave your teenage daughter or your deeply religious Muslim grandfather alone. You know, this is the nature of authoritarian repression, right? So you have this sort of culture of fear and this culture of repression in Xinjiang. And it can go on because village elections are often rigged. You have um, the use of violence to collect taxes. Of, of course, this violence is disproportionately meted out against Uyghurs. You have land reforms that 
really benefit Han investors and it destroys local housing communities of Uyghurs. The Communist Party of China gives priority to ethnic Han and even to foreign investors over the priority that locals should be able to enjoy. And if you rise up against and try to protest this type of repression, whether it's at the ballot box or in the real estate market, the, the police who are disproportionately Han, they are coming right after you. And so it begs the question, well, how are the Uyghurs reacting to this? Well, we see a range of reactions. And some of these reactions are inspired by Tiananmen Square. Some of them are inspired by the Tibetan movements for autonomy or independence. And the problem with understanding the Uyghur reactions is you have this sort of pantheon of reactions from on you know one extreme, you know, violent separatists who want an East Turkestan Republic, like a Kurdistan for Uyghurs. You know, Kurds want an independent Kurdistan, and Uyghurs want a Uyghurstan. And they are a nation without a state, and there are separatists, and there are even violent separatists. You know, and then you have Uyghurs who will call peaceful assimilationists on sort of maybe the other end of that continuum. You know, they, they want to get rich. They're grateful for the Han investments. They're willing to slide into the 21st century. They're enjoying the 11% economic growth on average per year. They want to be part of China, but they just want an equal shot. And then you have a million shades of gray in between. And so one of the problems we see in trying to understand the Uyghur reactions is that there is no unified Uyghur response to the Han infiltration and domination of Xinjiang province. But most Uyghurs know that waging war against the Chinese Communist Party in Beijing is a losing prospect. And so the literature that I've been most exposed to seems to suggest that a lot of the protests are aimed more at the local governing authorities and the corruption of those authorities than against the Communist Party or against Beijing or against Hu Jintao or Xi Jinping, right? Because that's just that's a sucker's game. You know, that's where you that's where you end up disappeared and and it's done so for you. But there's exceptions to that, and we'll get into that. Eliza uh, Steele at Princeton, who studies these things, said, and I'm quoting here: Beijing makes no distinction between the idea of weaker separatism violent or even nonviolent, and the idea of terrorism. And that's something we'll get into also, is what we might call Uyghur terrorism. The problem is that Beijing has an interest in not making the distinction between a nonviolent peaceful assimilationist and a terrorist. And so there have been regular uprisings beginning in 1989, uh, inspired by Tiananmen Square, 93, 97, 2009, and 2013. We're going to take a dive into the protests or riots of 2009. Okay, but Before we do, I want to share with you the mainstream reaction 
against Hanification of Xinjiang, which is manifested in the World Uyghur Congress. The World Uyghur Congress represents, and I'm quoting, the collective interests of the Uyghur people, end quote, and this is in and outside of Xinjiang, which is to say Uyghurs who live in Xinjiang and those who are refugees or living in exile. They are a nonviolent group, but they are nonviolent opposers to what they see as the occupation of East Turkestan. They reject authoritarianism. They reject religious intolerance. They reject terrorism. This is a peaceful group. And because they're a peaceful group, they are funded in part by the National Endowment for Democracy, which is headquartered in the United States. This creates, of course, all sorts of problems because the Chinese have suffered a great many humiliations by the West. The West sought to, and in some ways did, carve up and capitalize on China during the age of imperialism. And so it's very easy for Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party to see all of these protests by the World Uyghur Congress as just part of like a Western conspiracy to harm China. And it doesn't help the Chinese Communist Party's cause that the putative head of the World Uyghur Congress is a woman called Rebia Kadir, who was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize five times. Rebia Kadir, I don't know if you've heard of her, She's just a hero. <laughs> she's just amazing. Her story's amazing. Uh, she's still alive. Uh, she's uh, 73 now. Um, her family was persecuted in the Cultural Revolution, but she bounced back. She became a billionaire. Uh, she was a millionaire in the 1980s and became a billionaire in the early aughts. Um, she got her start selling traditional Uyghur clothing. She's a small retailer, and it ballooned and ballooned. And then when the Soviet Union collapsed, she was doing trade with uh, with Russia, and she got wicked rich off of that. And then she started investing that in real estate and got richer and richer and had 11 kids in the process. So this is like, this is a special woman. She was, you know, kind of a Chinese hero. She held a number of positions in the National People's Congress before she was expelled from the National People's Congress in 1999. She was a loyal, uh, you can't see my air quotes, a quote-unquote loyal member of the Communist Party until she got expelled. Uh, she was, after being expelled from the party, imprisoned for five years for sending journalism to her husband, who worked for Voice of America and Radio Free Asia. Uh, so she was seen as committing espionage. Condoleezza Rice the U.S. Secretary of State uh, managed to get her out. She was very sick, and Condoleezza Rice got her out of a Chinese prison uh, where she then moved to Munich and has been living for a long time. Um, great for her, right? She can get out, travel the world, and try to promote Uyghur causes. But her torture will always continue. Three of her kids have been imprisoned, um, I was doing a little more research about her and preparing for this talk. And I found, uh, it's out of a curiosity, I just typed her name 
into Google. And the first thing that comes up and the second and the third thing that comes up is a video of her grandkids disavowing her. I've linked to it in the PowerPoint. And I watched the videos and the, the subtitle in English. And, you know, they're saying, my grandmother's worthless. She doesn't understand how great China is. She doesn't care about how much China has done to give Uyghur people more opportunities. And, of course, this was a, a video produced by the Global Times, which is the propaganda agent of the Chinese Communist Party. It's the Russia Today of China. So the price of dissent for Rebia Kadir is eternal. It's heartening that she was able to get out. But the Chinese Communist Party is going to terrorize her until the day she dies, and then the Chinese Communist Party is going to terrorize her into the grave. Because that's how they roll. But it's not just her that the Chinese Communist Party has been going after. I want to take a snapshot of some of the more dramatic protests that took place in and around Xinjiang in the summer of 2009. Uh, I'm going to struggle to call these protests versus riots. I'm going to take a stand, I guess. I've decided now. I'm going to call them protests. I think that what the Uyghurs were seeking to do was to peacefully protest. The Chinese government called them riots, and while there was rioting going on, um, the rioting seems to me to have taken place in response to the Communist Party of China's disruption of the protests. So I'm just going to call them protests, because if I have to choose a word... I'll pick that one. So there are some short and long-term causes to these protests. For generations, the Uyghurs had come to resent the occupation of the Hans. Uh, Years of mutual resentment. Years of protesting. And as I said, this relative deprivation on the side of the Uyghurs, but on the side of the Han, they thought that the Uyghurs were getting special treatment. And it was indeed the case that Uyghurs in Xinjiang were getting preferential treatment for university admissions and for some of the more desirable secondary schools. The Uyghurs were exempt from the now defunct one-child policy. So it was the Han that had the impression that the Uyghurs were getting all the preferential treatment, which though they did get some preferential treatment, on the ledger, Han were getting decidedly more benefits. The Chinese Communist Party say that these riots were planned by the World Uyghur Congress and that they were planned from outside of the United States with American money and American strategy, um, so that this was like a foreign coup. Uh, Putin, by the way, would sometimes say the same thing about protests in Moscow leading up to the elections a few years back. He was saying, oh, this is just, you know, the West trying to instigate instability in our elections. So, you know, there you have it. But the spark for this, like the question, like, well, why in the summer of 2009 came because 
there are hundreds of thousands of Uyghurs who can't find work in their native Xinjiang province. So they have to go to work wherever they can in China. And there were a couple hundred thousand Uyghurs who were and still are migrant workers in southeast China. In this particular instance, there were migrant workers in Xiaoguan. And there were some Han Chinese who claimed that six women were raped. And they were raped by these Uyghur migrant workers. Now, there was no evidence that the perpetrators were Uyghurs. But that didn't stop the ethnic tensions from rising to a fever pitch. A brawl ensued, and at least two Uyghurs were killed. And it was ugly and nasty, and, um, you know, victims abound. And to try to create some peace around all of this, in Urumqi, again, the capital of Xinjiang, there was a vigil planned to celebrate the lives of two of the Uyghurs that were killed. But that vigil could also be seen as a protest. And of course, that's how the Chinese Communist Party saw it. Now, why did this vigil turn into a protest? And why did the protest turn into riots? The reporting that I've read seems to make it clear that it is primarily the fault of the escalation of the police forces that are dominated by Han and taking orders from the Chinese Communist Party. It is certainly clear that there was violence on both sides, but it was surely a stick-to-a-gun-fight type of situation. Uh, in the second week of July of 2009, there were 200 dead from these protests, another 1,700 injured. That's according to uh, the data given to us by the Chinese Communist Party officials. Um, in that same period, Human Rights Watch, who was trying to do their sacred work under major duress, I'm sure, they documented 43 disappearances you also had substantial property damage and dead bodies in the streets that the police just left for people to learn a lesson from. And so we have hundreds dead, thousands injured, dozens disappeared, and then comes the coverage of it. And the CCP has their own way of creating misinformation and sowing disinformation. And to try to, in their words, quote, prevent the incident from spreading further, uh, the Chinese Communist Party cut off all phone services and internet access in and around the regions of the protests. So we're left with uh, an even more incomplete record than we might have had otherwise. And if you turned on, you know, Chinese state TV, if you, you know, were watching China daily, if you're reading the Global Times, what you see were ethnically Han people being beaten sometimes to death by Uyghurs. And you don't see any Uyghur victims whatsoever. And so the 
People's Republic of China went on this campaign. They called it a harmony campaign to fight against what they call the three forces of terrorism, separatism, and extremism. And to create this harmony, uh, more than 400 Uyghurs faced criminal charges. Nine were executed before 2009 came to an end, and 26 more had or have pending death sentences. And so for one of my guiding questions, I you know, raised this problem of how the global community can react to this. And like, you know, how do you think the UN or the EU or the US reacted to this? Right. Well, of course, China has a seat on the Security Council, so uh, the UN is not going to do too much, and they certainly can't do anything that's binding. In 2009, the EU was just ravaged by the economic crises, um, right? You had Portugal and Ireland and Greece and Spain, and they were all just totally bankrupt. And there was questions about how the EU could even exist in light of this economic turmoil and the U.S., which had just pivoted to the Obama administration, had not developed a robust China policy. And the Obama administration was, like the European Union, totally focused on trying to stop the bleeding from the global financial collapse of 2007-2008. So how do you think they reacted? They didn't. You know, I've been given some version of this lecture for a decade now, and every year I ask students if they know about this, and they don't. And I don't fault them for it. You know, we all got to look to our backyards. But this was quite a calamitous situation, but there was no real reaction from the international community. And I'm not going to fault the international community per se. I understand we have to prioritize. I also would like to point out that the world is increasingly dependent on China as the workshop of our world. And it's really hard and increasingly harder for global leaders to speak honestly and earnestly about human rights issues in China when we are economically dependent on them the way that we are. I don't know what the solution to that is, but it's no, you know, there's no point in denying the problem. And that problem is made all the more complicated by the fact that the Chinese Communist Party, quite conveniently, tries to create a direct link between the East Turkestan independence movement and Al-Qaeda. Now, there is an East Turkestani Islamic movement, but no matter how hard I look, I can't find any connection between Al-Qaeda and the World Uyghur Congress or Al-Qaeda and mainstream Uyghur frustration, even Uyghur separatism. Now, I'm not a scholar in the area, and so I'll leave it to you to see if you can make that connection. But it seems pretty clear to me that for the most part, what the Chinese Communist Party is seeking to do is to equate Uyghur movements for human rights with Uyghur separatism and to equate Uyghur separatism with Islamic terrorism. And doing that and capitalizing on the global fear of terror has helped the Chinese Communist Party. 
And so the Chinese Communist Party can go about just arresting and executing whoever they see as terrorists, because terrorism is defined in the eyes of the Chinese Communist Party as Uyghurs who speak out for regional autonomy. And so you have more and more repression of Uyghur culture, more book burnings, more language prohibitions, more job discrimination, more of a police state. And so, of course, the Uyghurs are going to rise up. And in 2009, there was a vehicular explosive and knife attack, like a, a multi-pronged attack in Kashgar. In 2012, in Tianjin, there was a failed effort to hijack a flight. The next year, you have you know, 100 people on motorcycles who attacked a police station in Hotan. That same year, there was a Uyghur truck bombing of Tiananmen Square. Another police station was attacked that year. In 2014, the Rumchi rail station was bombed quite magnificently by Uyghur separatists. And then in 2014, again, in Kunming, at a railway station, there was a really nasty train station bombing, 29 civilians dead, 140 more injured. And that is like just the highlights of a couple-year period following 2009. Every few months, you have a major act of political violence perpetrated by disaffected Uyghur populations who feel that the CCP is undermining their basic human dignity and their international human rights. And I'd be remiss to not at least note that this reminds me of the laundry list of terror attacks perpetrated by Chechen and Dagestani Muslims against what they see to be a Russian occupation of autonomous Islamic republics. You know, we think about the Dubrovka Theater hostage crisis in 2002 in Moscow. Think about the school seizure in Beslan a couple years later in North Ossetia. Uh, in, uh, what was it, 2008, 2009, you had the Nevsky Express, that uh, Moscow to St. Petersburg train, which was derailed, you know, 30 or 40 people dead, hundreds injured. The Moscow suicide bombing at the metro station a year or two after that. And it kind of culminated in 2011 with the Moscow International Airport being bombed by Chechen separatists. You know, 40 dead, hundreds injured. It was a nightmare. You know, in the timeline of terror perpetrated by Uyghurs in China and Chechens in Russia, it wears on the population. And it does indeed give leaders space to react very aggressively. Putin reacted very aggressively, and Xi Jinping is reacting very aggressively. You know, if you just examine how Putin used brute force and jingoism to bolster his legitimacy and to gain support, you might just see where Xi Jinping got his playbook. And of course, Xi and Putin felt empowered to be brash and brutish in their handling of the matters, because they were using the precise language that the U.S. deployed in the so-called War on Terror. And the world sometimes watches, usually not. 
And it's worth mentioning that one of the reasons why the Chinese Communist Party and why Xi Jinping in particular can react so violently is because the Western world has really been careening from crisis to crisis, and the crises of mainland China are not a real priority. They're not a priority of Western voters. They're not a priority of Western leaders. And in the age of political amorality, and in the age of a sort of power vacuum of global leadership, the CCP is going about really cracking down on the World Uyghur Congress, on Uyghur separatism, and on freedom of speech, freedom of movement, and freedom of assembly, not to mention freedom of worship, in Xinjiang province. I have some data here published in The Economist showing the number of new security facilities and the area of new security facilities being built in Xinjiang province. And you see this gargantuan jump from 2016 to 2017 in the number and area of new security facilities being built in Xinjiang province. You know, the Chinese were building one or two or three security facilities per year that we know of during the first half of the 2010s. And then in 2017, they built 15 that we know about, and then 10. And they can go about building what I'm loosely calling security facilities, what could equally be called detention centers, re-education camps, and torture chambers. And in our age of political amorality and lacking real global leadership, particularly global leadership on human rights issues, this is the moment for the CCP to do its dirty work in Xinjiang province. And that's exactly, I'm afraid, what's happening. Some more data. We see... Here, the security-related job advertisements. And again, both in terms of police and surveillance staff and assistant police, that's the growth industry in Xinjiang province right now. It has become a bona fide police state. If you look at the number of arrests in Xinjiang as compared to the rest in China, you find not only that the number of arrests of Uyghurs has gone up tenfold in the last couple of years, but you also find that Xinjiang accounts for about a quarter of total criminal arrests in China. Again, we're talking about a population of 22 million out of a total of about 1.4 billion and they account for a quarter of the arrests, what are they being arrested for? They're being arrested for worshiping, for speaking, for expressing their culture with dignity. And then this final chart I show you here is how much China spends on security per person. And it is Tibet and it is Xinjiang that are the outliers in this regard. Xinjiang province, I think it's safe to say, 
has become a bona fide police state using the most modern technology known to man. And as it stands today, as I show you these recently unearthed aerial photos of Uyghur detention camps in Dabanachang and in Hotan, the state of play is such that China is perpetrating what some reliable outside observers are calling an ethnic cleansing. The word genocide has been used to some effect. And it's hard to imagine a political calculus in the Western world that could stand up against this right now. And the more you learn about it, I'm afraid, the more infuriating and heartbreaking it becomes. And in the age of globalization, and here I show a map of the Belt and Road Initiative, these regions like Xinjiang and Tibet are central to the Chinese vision to further integrate itself into the global economy and to become leaders in the global economy. The Chinese Communist Party seems totally disinterested in allowing culture and language and freedom and human rights to get in the way of their vision of China as a global leader. And in our age of unrest, I will conclude my thoughts on Xinjiang by showing you a Chinese communist propaganda poster, which in Chinese reads, stability is a blessing. Instability is a calamity. And in our collective age of unrest, I'm recording this as we sort of slide into 2021 in the throes of a pandemic, cautiously watching what we hope will be a peaceful and orderly transition of power from one U.S. president to the next in the year where Angela Merkel is set to step down from her leadership role of the CDU in an age of various forces that threaten our stability, not least of which is climate change. Here's this poster, right? Stability is a blessing. Instability is a calamity. The Chinese Communist Party has come to believe that cultural repression in Xinjiang and Tibet are essential to creating the stability they need to exercise the power they want to exercise in the world. So that took me a while. But there wasn't a whole lot of fat to trim there, I hope you'll agree. So you can decide now if you think it would be prudent of you to put this thing down, think it through, reflect on your notes a little bit, and whenever you're ready, we'll dive into the struggle for autonomy in the Tibetan 
special autonomous region. I'm ready. I'm going to go now because that's what I do. I feel like I'm on a roll. All right. So the struggle for autonomy in Tibet. We should begin with the facts. The Tibet Autonomous Region was established in 1965. It is the second largest province right after Xinjiang. It is 90% Tibetan, 8% ethnically Han. Uh, it is not particularly populated, though it is pretty big, as we just said. It only has about 3 million people. It is the least densely populated province in all of China. I should note that in addition to the 3 million people living in Tibet, there are 3 million more Tibetans, most of whom live in China, some of whom are in the Tibetan diaspora in India, Nepal, Bhutan. Uh, there was not a one-child policy in Tibet that was part of the specialness of their special autonomy, which made it the fastest-growing population in China for a couple decades there, but still not a lot of people in Tibet. And the Chinese Communist Party has made pretty substantial investments in trying to educate and provide health care for this fast-growing population. Now, not to dive too far into the history of Tibet, of course, that not being the purview of what we do here, throughout most of the Qing dynasty, Tibet was to some degree in the control of Qing China. Historians have some debate over the degree to which the Qing dynasty actually controlled Tibet. There weren't a lot of people to control. It is insanely beautiful mountainous landscape. It's kind of hard to control that type of rugged territory. But as part of, you know, this series of great humiliations in the early years of the 20th century, the British went on an expedition to Tibet. And this was all part of the quote-unquote great game between the UK and Russia to carve up that part of the world. And in 1904, in the Treaty of Lhasa, uh, the British demanded that China open up the border between British India and Tibet to free trade, which China did. And again, these are in the dying years of the Qing Empire. It was soon to fall. Capitalizing on this weakness in 1907, Britain and Russia agreed to a Chinese suzerainty over Tibet, which is to say they could watch over it, but it wasn't theirs. And in 1912, when the Qing dynasty finally did fall, Tibetans sought to become independent. And to commemorate this and to celebrate this, and with the highest of hopes, the 13th Dalai Lama returned from India and the Chinese troops left. Then, of course, you know, again, you have World War I and World War II. And in the interim between those wars, uh, Britain and China and Tibet had talks that went nowhere. The Soviet Union, as part of its great expansion game of the 1920s and 30s, moved into Central Asia, and the UK was barely hanging on to big India. And again, when I say big India, I'm talking about uh, India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, and the British were soon to lose that. And of course, global instability was going to manifest from Britain losing big India. 
And whether or not Britain lost Big India, you had the Chinese Civil War from 1945 to 49, the Kuomintang versus the communists. Spoiler alert, the communists won. And uh, the year after the communists won, uh, the People's Liberation Army forced a treaty with the Tibetan government throughout the 1950s, 60s, and through much of the 1970s, the United States CIA had a pretty active presence in Tibet. Nixon, in his effort to open the door to China, promised to pull the CIA out of Tibet. It was sort of an open secret that CIA was using Tibet uh, as an opportunity to infiltrate China, to do all sorts of things that the CIA does, again, at the purview of this lecture, um, and Nixon promised to remove CIA operatives as part of the agreement to normalize relations with China. But in the height of the Cold War, as an effort to try to not lose a big chunk of their land, the newly established People's Republic of China established a 17-point agreement with the Tibetan people, which aimed to sort of gradually assimilate the two cultures uh, to protect Tibetan language and culture and religion, that being Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and in exchange for that, the PRC was able to establish military bases in Tibet. This 17-point agreement wasn't pleasing to everyone. And by the late 1950s, you have a outright revolt in outer Tibet it was really tumultuous. The Dalai Lama was forced into exile. And to try to quell this in 1965, the Tibet Autonomous Region was established. Of course, as well intended as that might have been, a year after that, the Cultural Revolution swept through China, and that killed about a third of the Tibetan population. Uh, for their part, the PRC publicly apologized for this, but I don't know. I mean, you know, you can come to whatever conclusions you want to come to about the function of apology. I think forgiveness is really powerful and it's really beautiful and perhaps we should be more forgiving. I also think that killing a third of a population requires maybe more than an apology, but maybe that makes me the fool here. But it's surely the case that the CCP's treatment of the Tibetan people has engendered a moral sense of righteous indignation among people around the world who care about human rights. Look, when I was in high school, I was in the Free Tibet group for a while there. It was pretty common to have Free Tibet student organizations at high schools, in particular at universities, you would see free Tibet t-shirts on the street with, in retrospect, astounding frequency. In the post-Tianmen era, there was in the Western world a hope that Tibet could be the beneficiary of the instability or the perceived instability of China. And all of that was helped out by the 14th Dalai Lama, Tenzin Gyatsao, uh, who is still the Dalai Lama at 85 years old. He's the spiritual leader of Tibet. He is the head of the Tibetan government in exile. He's an author. He's a speaker. 
and he's very much an A-list celebrity. I have pictures of him here with everyone from Obama to Oprah to Rebia Kadir. But if you Google the Dalai Lama with the virtual list of celebrities goes on and on and on. And it is indeed the case that people find him to be otherworldly in his affectation and in the way that he gives. Like I said, he's 85 and his future is uncertain. He is semi-retired and the future of the Dalai Lama position writ large is rather uncertain. In his mind's eye, the Dalai Lama post is supposed to be a spiritual post, not a political post. But it's really hard to disentangle the two, though he seems to walk that line rather splendidly. Now, for its part, the People's Republic of China claims sovereignty over quote-unquote high reincarnations in Tibet, which is basically to say that the Chinese Communist Party will have the right to establish who will be the next Dalai Lama. But Tibetan people aren't particularly convinced of that. And what could be interesting is if the next Dalai Lama came from the Tibetan cultural belt, so maybe from India or from Nepal, and if that were the case, the next Dalai Lama could potentially be even more anti-Chinese. Now, because this Dalai Lama post is substantially more spiritual than political, let's just take a brief exploration of how the Tibet Autonomous Region, or the TAR, is governed. There are seven prefectures within the province, and each of those is governed by the chairman of that particular region. Of course, in practice, the Tibet Autonomous Region chairman is usually taking orders from the CCP party secretary of that prefecture. The chairman is usually Tibetan, and the party secretary is always ethnically Han. So in light of that governing structure, what do Tibetan people want? Well, what they want is to be safe. They want to be safe from Han encroachment. They want to be safe from poverty and disease. They also want to be autonomous. They want the A in TAR to really stand out. They also want to be heard. They don't want to be ignored. They want to be autonomous. And they want to choose the next Dalai Lama. Now, just like in Xinjiang and just like in Chechnya, you have a continuum of degrees of radical politics. You do have hardline Tibetans who really want an independent Tibet, a quote-unquote free Tibet. And that sentiment is more pronounced in the exile politics than the actual politics that take place in Tibet. Now, we don't know what percentage of Tibetans would prefer to be independent of China. We know that a lot of Tibetans who are outside of Tibet, whether they're in Nepal or New York, they want a Tibet that's free of China. Unfortunately, Tibetans in China can't really express their desires in a way that 
would make studies to this end particularly reliable. So you do have hardliners that want independence, and then maybe all the way on the other side of the continuum, you want Tibetans who want more Western development. They want more Chinese development. They want more roads and more railways and more schools. And at the same time, though, they want to be able to be Tibetan and engage in their cultural practices and to be Buddhists and to still have access to the worldly goods that development brings. And I have for you here, and if necessary, I apologize for it, but an image of a Buddhist engaging in self-immolation as a means to protest some of the more grotesque policies of the Chinese Communist Party. So if that's what Tibetans want, what are the Chinese giving Tibetans? Well, they're giving them the highest poverty rate in China, an infant mortality rate, which is two times that of other Chinese provinces. Half of children in Tibet are malnourished. They have a life expectancy that's five years less than the rest of China. And you have a problem of really sort of like sad displacement and refugee politics. But with that said, the Chinese are giving them development. The 2019 GDP of Tibet is 160 billion yuan. That's 23 billion U.S. dollars. That is an eight-fold increase since the year 2000. Tibet's GDP growth has averaged 11% per year. And if we look at this graph from The Economist here, we see that the Tibet Autonomous Region is the beneficiary of net subsidies that are greater than its GDP. So Tibet actually gets more in subsidies from Beijing than they produce themselves. And this is why there are a lot of Tibetans who, look, they want their kids to be able to go to school. They want their aunt to be cured of cancer. They want hospitals. They want roads. Uh, they want access to the world. They'd like to have the internet. You know, those Tibetans exist. And so to the extent to which the Chinese Communist Party can manage to build on the energies of those Tibetans, they'll be able to continue to influence politics in Tibet. The CCP is giving Tibet the Qinghai Tibet Railway. This is one of the most amazing engineering projects in rail history. It goes over uh, the Himalayas. There is a pass at 16,600 feet where there, like, there's actual oxygen masks that come down that people have to put on when they go over this pass. So the Chinese government is going to great lengths to develop Tibet. To this end, in 2006, the CCP announced their Comfortable Housing Program, which was part of this broader Build a New Socialist Countryside program. Uh, they built housing for 2 million people, 280,000 Tibetans, who lived in traditional villages or as herds people, they were relocated to concrete, comparatively comfortable houses alongside roads. Now, there's two ways to look at that, right? One is like it's cultural destruction, it's cultural devastation, it's 
part of a path towards ethnic cleansing. You're taking these people's traditions and uh, traditional occupations and cultures away from them. And the other way to look at that is it's modern development. Uh, and people who were living in what the Communist Party determined to be quote-unquote substandard housing, they had to take their houses apart and remodel them until the CCP was happy. And of course, you know, the way things go in China and other painfully corrupt countries, anyone's house was substandard if it was anywhere near where they wanted to build the railroad or where they wanted to build the mall or where they wanted to build the factory or the hydroelectric plant. And just like in Xinjiang, a lot of the housing that was built and some of the best housing that was built was reserved for Communist Party officials. Because I have a dark sense of humor, I will quote an article about this from the China Daily, where an individual called Liu Kang Yeshi, who's an employee at Jiam Industrial and Trading Co., says, quote, At the beginning, many people were against the mining projects in Jiama, believing exploring the mines was not respectful to the spirits. The situation has changed now. Most graduates in Lhasa want to work at the mine, considering it to be a good job. I mean, surely there's some truth to that. But who would have the courage to say something to the contrary? There is a lot of mining going on, perhaps most notably lithium and copper, both of which make our phones last longer and run faster. And in Tibet, you have water. Lots of water, lots of mountains. The potential for hydroelectric power there is beginning to be tapped, pun intended, and it's going to be a source of great riches for China. And what China's trying to do is to educate people in Tibet to be able to be engineers and lawyers and mid-level managers and secretaries at these lithium and copper and hydropower plants. In 2020, the United Nations Development Program said that the literacy rate in Tibet is 68%. That's the lowest literacy rate in China. Uh, the CCP, for their part, says that the literacy rate in Tibet is 98%. I'll go with the UN on this one. But Tibet has the fastest growing education system in China, and this might prove to be the great equalizer, right? Education can give Tibetans an opportunity to get rich. Education can also be a propaganda agent teaching young, impressionable Tibetan kids, five-year-olds, eight-year-olds, that you know Buddhism is uncivilized and that the Dalai Lama is a traitor. And if it weren't for the communists, we'd all be speaking English. So the CCP is giving Tibet education, and eventually maybe they'll give them what they call in Britain territorial justice. But right now what they're giving them is a lot more ethnically Han people, and that's not making all Tibetans particularly happy. In fact, it is leading to a real refugee crisis. And this is part of the problem of development. And what you see on this image to the left is the splendid beauty, a 
of Tibet, and on the right, we have Tibetans who are being forced to flee from that very beauty. These are refugee Tibetans seeking exile in India. These are people who might have wanted to live like their ancestors did, but that's becoming increasingly impossible because of the authoritarian nature and the myopic vision of the Chinese Communist Party. And when I say myopic, I mean they have a very specific vision for what development means. And it has nothing to do with spiritual development. It has nothing to do with development in a moral sense, having to do with allowing more voices to be heard and promoting diversity and empathy and awareness. It has to do with a very specific vision of development, which has everything to do with GDP growth and global power politics. As promised, the Tibet portion of this talk was indeed substantially shorter, and it is thus time for us to pivot from special autonomous regions to the special economic zone of Hong Kong. And again, if now is a good time for you to pause, go for a jog, beat up the neighbor kids, stare at a different screen, try to foment a fight between your cat and your dog, send some nonsensical text messages to your pals, use the snapogram, a little bit of Insta chat, go on some MySpace. You kids like MySpace, right? Whatever you need to do before we take that deep dive into the dramatic problematics of Hong Kong. I'm ready to go. I'm totally into it. Kind of losing a little bit of wind. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to make a coffee, probably eat some chocolate, jump around a little bit, and come back and drive this train into the station. All right, I'll be honest with you. I was considering making a coffee and having some chocolate, but maybe I lay down and watched Netflix and fell asleep for six hours. And so it is the morning, and I am back. Um, oh, this is going to be so cheesy. But it is hardly morning in Hong Kong. It is a dark hour indeed for Hong Kong faces what seems to many outside observers, myself included, to be an existential crisis. Here's the map of Hong Kong. There's my daughter's triangle. And let's give a few basic facts. The Hong Kong Special Administrative Region of the People's Republic of China includes Hong Kong Island, Kowloon, and the New Territories. It is a little bit bigger than Berlin, but it has a population of 7.5 million people. It's one of the most densely populated cities in the world. It is 92% Han, 98% literate, and that seems to be an agreed-upon statistic. People there speak Cantonese and English, and it's wicked rich, second highest number of billionaires in the world. I am not one of those billionaires. A little bit of history... In 1841, having lost the first opium war, 
China ceded Hong Kong to Britain, and being the nature of that hungry imperial crown, 20 years later, Britain annexed the Kowloon Peninsula as well. At the height of the age of imperialism, as a result of the Second Opium War, the British crown took out a 99-year lease on Hong Kong from the Chinese government. The humiliation continues, my friends. And as part of this lease, the governor of Hong Kong became a direct subordinate to the British parliament. Despite the People's Republic of China being established in 1949 as a communist enemy, Hong Kong and Kowloon and the new territories remained in the hands of the British. That 99-year release was upheld. And a lot of nationalists and capitalists and other enemies, speaking broadly, of the communist regime fled to Hong Kong. So Hong Kong, in a way, became a place for dissenters and people who had reason to fear reprisal from the Chinese Communist Party. In 1984, the British and the Chinese recommitted to the handover of Hong Kong to the British. In 1997, Hong Kong was returned to China, and very importantly, in 2005, I visited Hong Kong. There I am, New Year's Eve Day, 2005. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that shirt. I used to love that. It's a, like a running shirt. And, um, and I lost it that New Year's Eve as part of a broader story, which I will not record for the world to hear. But it was a good time. That's Bruce Lee and I. He was kind of a hero of mine when I was a younger man. Hey, he is sort of still a hero of mine. Go Bruce Lee. So that's me in Hong Kong. Looking ridiculous, as always. Get me out of there. So the politics in the Hong Kong special autonomous region can be described by the commitment to one country, two systems, which is to say Hong Kong is part of China, but it has its own special system. And this system was proposed by Deng Xiaoping and adopted by the National People's Congress. The idea is that Hong Kong would remain a testing ground for capitalism, a testing ground for East Asian international business and financial sectors, and that Hong Kong would continue to have independent courts, rule of law based on British common law, that democracy in Hong Kong would be maintained, and that though Beijing could station their military in Hong Kong, they would not interfere with the internal affairs of Hong Kong. And that was largely the case for the first decade or so of Chinese rule over Hong Kong. But that has been systematically chipped away at. As part of this one country, two systems setup, Beijing can interpret the basic law. Beijing can control foreign affairs and defense. And Beijing can select the chief executive 
the executive branch of Hong Kong. We'll get into that in a second. Hong Kong can apply their basic law, of course, again, subject to the interpretation of the National People's Congress Standing Committee. Hong Kong can control the police, immigration. That immigration thing becomes problematic, as you'll see later. Customs and anti-corruption efforts. And Hong Kong can do what Hong Kong does best, frankly, which is to promote global capitalism, developing trade and financial industries, and engaging in shipping and transportation and communications, promoting tourism, making money. That's what Hong Kong is best at. I have for you in this slide given some excerpts of the basic law of Hong Kong to illustrate the previous points. I won't read through them. So let's just take a snapshot of politics in Hong Kong. We have the executive, legislative, and judicial branch. We'll fly through them. You have a chief executive, which is selected, not elected, but selected by a 1,200-member election committee. The chief executive serves five-year terms. They have a two-term limit, and they are advised by their executive council, their cabinet. We'll talk about how this selection, as opposed to election, of the chief executive is a source of profound political strife in Hong Kong. We have a legislative branch. It is a 70-seat unicameral legislative council, directly elected, very high voter turnout in Hong Kong. And we have a judiciary, one of the legacies of British common law, but again, the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress has the final power of interpretation here. In 2007, so just less than a decade into Chinese sovereignty over Hong Kong, the National People's Congress ruled that universal suffrage might be adopted in 2017. So there was like going to be a 10-year rollout of increasing democracy in Hong Kong. Uh, that has not happened, and it doesn't seem like that is likely to happen anytime soon. In fact, the opposite is happening. There's been a rollback of democracy both at the ballot box and on the streets of Hong Kong. Despite that, we do see a competitive multi-party system in Hong Kong as of 2018, uh, the last elections, there were 26 parties that were running, none of whom have more than 17%. So this is a very competitive political party system. The political fissure line is along the desired relationship to Beijing. You have a more pro-democracy camp and a more pro-Beijing camp. And whether this framing of the political divide is accurate, and I think it is, that is the perception that you're either with Beijing or you're with democracy. And so the rhetoric accordingly becomes really heated. The Communist Party itself is not a registered party. However, for reasons aforementioned and reasons soon to be discussed, the CCP exercises a substantial influence in Hong Kong. So in the early years of this Hong Kong special autonomous region, the international community was thrilled with the way things were going. 
in a British Secretary of State for Foreign and Commonwealth Affairs report from 2001. This is a report given to Parliament in March 2002. The UK Secretary of State for Foreign and Commonwealth Affairs says, and I quote, Overall, our view remains that the concept of one country, two systems is an everyday reality in Hong Kong. The rule of law and independence of the judiciary, which are so vital to Hong Kong's success, are being upheld. Essential rights and freedoms are being protected, and challenges to them fully and freely debated. So, 18 years ago, very optimistic. The United States is keeping an eye on Hong Kong as well. And the U.S. Speaker's Task Force on Hong Kong in 2002 reads, quote, Most Western analysts conclude that one country, two systems has permitted Hong Kong to maintain its unique character. Long-term success depends on preserving the quality and integrity of Hong Kong's outstanding cadre of civil servants, the rule of law, and an independent judiciary. So the U.S. and the U.K. agree that things are going as planned and as hoped for in the PRC-Hong Kong relationship. Freedom House, so a more nonpartisan observer than the U.S. and the U.K., they say, and I'll paraphrase here, that the freedoms of speech and press and publication are being upheld, that political debate is quote-unquote vigorous, that there's tons of newspapers and you have foreign media operating with freedom. However, there are concerns, as of 2012, so a decade after the U.S. and the U.K. reports, there are concerns among journalists about, quote, tighter government control over access to information. So the concerns begin in or around 2012, and those are more than just concerns now. Those are bona fide fears, and for good reason, as we'll see. Uh, Freedom House Now, we're comparing and contrasting Hong Kong and the People's Republic of China. Hong Kong is partly free. The PRC is not free. Hong Kong is a freedom rating of 35 and the PRC has a freedom rating of 6.5 out of 7. So 7 is the least free. The PRC gets a 6.5, Hong Kong a 3.5. Hong Kong has a civil liberties rating of 2. One is the best. The PRC has a freedom rating of 6 out of 7. In terms of political rights, Hong Kong has a freedom rating of 5 out of 7, so not great. And the PRC has political rights judged by Freedom House to be 7 out of 7, the lowest possible rating. So Hong Kong is considerably more free, particularly in terms of civil liberties, freedom of press. China's, as we know, not very free at all. And it is this freedom that people of Hong Kong are desperately fighting for. And part of this freedom is wrapped up in economic freedom. Hong Kong is third on the ease of doing business scale. 93% of Hong Kongers work in the service sector. There's virtually no unemployment. The banking system is the apple of the world's eye. Uh, very little debt. The legal system is strong, which encourages international investment. The Hong Kong dollar is strong. The Hong Kong stock exchange is stable and growing. Part of the reason the Hong Kong stock exchange is 
growing is because Hong Kong trades more and more with China and there's more and more capital in China. 55% of Hong Kong trade is with China, another 8% with the United States, and 3% is with Japan, uh, which does create some problems vis-a-vis the Chinese-Japanese relationship, which is not the purview of this lecture, but it's not pretty either. In 2003, the SIPA was signed. This is the Closer Economic Partnership Arrangement, CEPA. This created a no-tariff zone between China and Hong Kong, and it created for an increased use of the yuan in Hong Kong, as opposed to just the Hong Kong dollar. While it is to many Hong Kongers the primary ambition to maintain Hong Kong's economic largesse, there is also this desire to maintain a robust liberal democracy. Usually about 60 to 70% of people vote in the legislative council elections. People read the press. There is a hearty political dialogue, but there's a hearty political dialogue that increasingly is wary of criticizing Beijing directly. You got to really read between the lines in the Hong Kong press to determine editorial content that is taking a stab at Xi Jinping in particular, and at Beijing more generally. But you do get news in Hong Kong that you can't get in mainland China. News of revolts in Xinjiang or Tibet, these types of things you you don't hear about almost at all on the Chinese mainland, and you hear about them with some frequency in the Hong Kong press. People in Hong Kong, in part because they're trying to maintain an economic system that demands transparency and rule of law, but in part because they have an ideological affection for freedom and democracy and rule of law, they demand transparency, they demand accountability, they demand efficiency from the Hong Kong government, and they fear that the Beijing government is going to chip away at that. And so you have emerging a protest culture in Hong Kong. They're protesting the fact that they can't elect their chief executive, which they had hoped they would be doing by now. There's a protest culture that supported the Tiananmen Square protests in 1989. There's a protest culture that supports Tibetans and Uyghurs in their desire for more autonomy or for independence. And that protest culture is changing. In 2014, the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress decided on an electoral reform law of the Hong Kong chief executive for 2016 and for legislative council elections in 2017. They decreed that a 1,200-member nominating committee would elect two to three candidates before the public could vote on them. This is candidate vetting. This is the Chinese Communist Party openly declaring that they are going to forcefully and conspicuously stick their hands into Hong Kong politics. And it was the young people in particular in China, quite hearteningly, who risked life and limb and who continued to risk life and limb to protest against this. The Hong Kong Federation of Students and Scholarism protested outside the government headquarters in September of 2014. Out of this emerged a movement called the OC movement or Occupy Central. It began as Occupy Central with Love and Peace. 
This is a nod to the Occupy Wall Street movements. And I think it might be a nod to OC, like Orange County, but I'm not sure. Probably not. Wasn't that a show, the OC? Hold on, I'm going to pause. I'm going to look it up. I, I, wasn't there? Wasn't it the OC? Yeah. The American drama series starring Misha Barton, Rachel Bilson, Adam Brody. I don't know who any of these people are. The OC. How long was that on for? Four years. All right. Is that what you're tuning in for? All right, hold on. Let me get back to this thing here. So while there was an effort to occupy Center with Love and Peace, what we really had was an occupation of sensitive public spaces in Hong Kong by students who were willing to fight and die for democracy and self-determination. The Chinese Communist Party insists that the West, particularly the United States, probably Britain, were conspiring to create and sustain this movement. That, again, this was going to be another effort of the West to humiliate China. But what you had in the streets is something you don't see in mainland China. You had 100,000 protesters throughout the summer demanding self-determination, demanding the right to elect their executive council, demanding an end to this bill that would have created for candidate vetting. And then the kids came back to university and classes began. And then there was a boycott of school. And then things got messy. You know, people's movements aren't so hard to instigate, but they're infinitely more difficult to keep going. And they're yet even more difficult to contain and to control. But the People's Liberation Army is a pretty reliable agent in terms of controlling people's movements. Their effort is to contain, to clear, and to cease pro-democracy efforts. They use tear gas, detention, martial law. They blocked roads and bridges in and out of the affected areas of Hong Kong. They arrested hundreds. They beat hundreds more, probably thousands more. And they deployed what one scholar called the trifecta of terror. Chinese gangs, the Chinese police, and the Chinese People Liberation Army. This trifecta of terror has been used in Tibet and Xinjiang as well, where the police hop into bed with the gangs to have the gangs do the dirty work for the police and the People's Liberation Army. And these Chinese gangs have no boundaries and no barriers, and they become above the law in an effort to support law enforcement. And they beat and intimidate the protesters into submission. And when watching the blood in the streets, a group called the Voice of Loving Hong Kong was established. And this was an anti-protester group established by the business community who wanted business to get back to normal in Hong Kong. Its voice is to say, all right, kids, go back to school. The Chinese Communist Party has been working with us for 20 years. They're going to continue to work with us. Nobody died at Tiananmen Square. We don't want anyone to die here. And of course, that's not true. I bring up the voice of loving Hong Kong in opposition to the Occupy Center movement to show that there is a range of reactions in Hong Kong 
as well to the increasing encroachment of the Chinese Communist Party. One member of the Legislative Council, Albert Ho, this is a member of the Democratic Party, said to the BBC, quote, the attack on protesters was one of the tactics used by the communists in mainland China from time to time. They used triads or pro-government mobs to try to attack you so the government will have to assume responsibility. The former chief executive of Hong Kong, Tang Chewa, when asking the students to leave the protest, he said, you've made a great sacrifice by putting aside everything to join the movement in the pursuit of democracy. But the rule of law and obeying the law form the cornerstone of democracy. And this is one of those impossible problems of building and sustaining democracies. There are always going to be limits of freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. Assemblages of people can, in fact, threaten the public interest, and there are laws against certain types of assembly. Yes, these students were violating the law. They were engaging in civil disobedience. My read on history seems to suggest that civil disobedience is sometimes necessary and proper. But there has to be limits on it. And here's the former chief executive saying, you've reached your limit. And of course, what he's trying to do is to restore law and order and leave it up to the grown-ups in the room to decide the fate of Hong Kong. Laura Cha, who's a very successful international business person, she studied at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. She was the chairwoman of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, which is pretty cool. And she was a board member of HSBC, which is the Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation. She said in 2014, African-American slaves were liberated in 1861, but didn't get voting rights until 107 years later, so why can't Hong Kong wait for a while? Ugh. Oh, Laura Cha. How you've got it so wrong. So this is a case of what we've talked about, you know, like, whataboutism, right? Well, America didn't give full voting rights to African-Americans. So why should Hong Kong feel obliged to give full voting rights to our citizens on behalf of anyone with an interest in democracy? Boo, Laura Cha, boo. But of course, you know, what she wants is for things to go back to normal so that the Hong Kong stock exchange and the Hong Kong banking sector can do what it's really good at, which is making money for at least a certain segment of the population. So that's 2014, and eventually the kids did go back to school, but there was this seething discomfort in Hong Kong, and students and young people in particular had every reason to fear that the future of Hong Kong belonged to the Chinese communists. And they hoped to capitalize on elections in 2017 and 2018 to let democracy prevail in Hong Kong, but that didn't happen. So in 2019, a major protest wave emerged. It was caused by a number of factors. You know, the first was the misconduct of the Hong Kong police in 2014, but also 2015, 16, 17, 18, and in 2019, the Hong Kong police were 
brutal in response to young Hong Kongers who desperately seek to protect their democracy against what they do not see as inevitable encroachment by Beijing. They believe, and I hope not foolishly, that liberal democracy can be saved in Hong Kong, that the rise of China does not need to be the demise of democracy in Hong Kong. They were also protesting against economic and social inequalities in Hong Kong. As I stated previously, you have this billionaire class. What I didn't say is that you have conspicuous relative deprivation in Hong Kong. You have a lot of guest workers, and you have a young population who fears that economic opportunities might not be afforded to them the way that their parents were granted opportunities. Ultimately, it seems that the protests in Hong Kong were an effort to revive the spirit of the 2014 Umbrella Revolution, which, despite the many sacrifices, despite the international coverage, despite this rather Herculean effort during which people put themselves at grave risk, democracy continued to backslide and China continued to encroach. And the Western world was focusing on other matters, which we don't need to dive into now. So part of the cause for the 2019 protests in Hong Kong were to garner international attention from parties who were busy focusing on their own internal struggles. Not to simplify it too much, but the Hong Kong protests in 2019 were about freedom. They were about democracy. They were about the right to assemble. They were about rebelling against the emergency regulations ordinance, which was, in effect, martial law in Hong Kong. Those are sort of like the longer-term causes. But the spark in this clearly loaded powder keg, in this particular case, wasn't very simple. The spark was Carrie Lam, the Hong Kong chief executive, proposing to the legislative branch the Fugitive Offenders and Mutual Legal Assistance in Criminal Matters Bill. This bill was proposed because a young man called Chan Tong Kai killed his girlfriend while on a trip to Taiwan. When in Taiwan, from mainland China, he learned that his girlfriend was pregnant and that the pregnancy resulted from her affair with another young man. So he killed her. Sadly. Tragically, really. And then he fled to Hong Kong. Why? Well, Hong Kong couldn't charge him for a crime that he committed in China. And of course, to Beijing, Taiwan is China. And they couldn't extradite him because there was no agreement between Beijing and Hong Kong vis-a-vis extradition. They had no ability to do that. Now, I say this is complicated because I think most of us agree that this young murderer should be 
tried for murder by the community that he affected, which is to say, in his province in China. The complicating variable here is that if Beijing could demand extradition of people they deemed to be criminals, of course, in this case, this young man was indeed a criminal, a murderer, but there's a slippery slope. If Beijing can order the extradition of this criminal, perhaps they could order the extradition of journalists who they deem to be criminals, or scholars, or leaders of protest movements. So it's a complicated and vexed set of causes. The goals of these protests are to withdraw that extradition bill. But also beyond that, to get recognition from the Hong Kong authorities that what had been going on in Hong Kong in 2014 through 2019 were not mere riots, that these were legitimate protests seeking to protect and defend democracy. And the legal framing of these gatherings as riotous was something that the Hong Kong protesters sought to overturn. And along those lines, the protesters sought to get the release of political protesters from prison and to have them not just released but exonerated for the crimes that they had committed. These protesters also sought to arrange an independent commission of inquiry into police behavior, particularly trying to examine police use of Chinese gangs to beat and torture and create a culture of intimidation around protesting. And beyond that, these protesters wanted universal suffrage. You know, they want democracy. They want the legislative council to be elected. They want the chief executive to be directly elected by the people. And they wanted the current chief executive, Carrie Lam, to resign because she was clearly very cozied up to Beijing. And the way that she deployed the police against young people showed that she was not on the side of justice and that the police weren't on the side of justice. You know, they wanted to, you know, we're calling it now defund the police, but these protesters wanted to dissolve and reorganize the Hong Kong police to get the mafiosos out of there, to get the Beijing friendlies out of there, and to promote rule of law. I show here a photo of protesters occupying the Legislative Council in July of 2019. Like, they actually took over the Legislative Council and they uh, put images of young political protesters who are imprisoned. The photo adjacent to it shows a Hong Konger throwing eggs at a photo of Xi Jinping on the 70th birthday of the People's Republic of China, October 1st, 2019. October 1st, 1949, was when the People's Republic of China was established. And this was like a really celebratory day, and here's a Hong Konger throwing eggs at the face of the authoritarian leader Xi Jinping. This next photo is the so-called shy Nazi flag instead of Chinese, shy Nazi, and it is the colors of the Chinese flag uh, with a swastika 
to suggest that the Chinese government is not just authoritarian, it is fascist and totalitarian. When this was being reported in 2019, the BBC sent some reporters out to Hong Kong, and there were some really powerful sentiments from people who were at the protest. I want to read a couple of them to you. The first was from Ernest, who is a 16-year-old student, and he says, quote, If we don't stand out front today, we won't have any chance to speak anymore. We will become real China, and we will not have any chance to protest. Another student, Tang, 15 years old, said, quote, At first, I thought I was not strong enough to come out, but then I started to think that everyone, no matter how small, needs to come. I'm angry about police abuse against the protesters, sexual abuse, and shooting tear gas for no reason. A visitor from Japan called Sakura came to Hong Kong to join the protests. And Sakura says, quote, It's not just a Hong Kong problem. It's an international problem. Today, Hong Kong. Tomorrow, Japan. That's why I come all the way from Japan to support the protest today. I want to safeguard Japan, Taiwan, and Hong Kong as we are deeply connected. So I feel the same as a Hong Konger, and I will stand with Hong Kong. And then Chan, a 22-year-old, was flying the Tibetan flag and said, I want to show that Hong Kongers also support Tibet. And they were all victims of the CCP. We can see the history of Tibet is repeating itself here. And that kind of brings us full circle. The state of play in Hong Kong is really, really tense. The police presence is overwhelming. The street gangs are ruling. Students are running scared. And for most of 2019 and 2020, the world hasn't really been watching China, right? The better part of 2020, we were watching the American election, we were watching COVID, we were watching all sorts of political calamities, but we haven't been watching Hong Kong. And when the world's not watching, that's when China can go about doing some dastardly work. Sharing an image here of Nathan Law, who was, along with Joshua Wong, one of the most, well, notorious in the eyes of Beijing, but heroic in the eyes of the protesters, young men who, uh, in this photo, is walking down Unter den Linden by the Brandenburg Gate, protesting the Chinese foreign minister's visit to Berlin. And Nathan Law, just a couple of days ago, the end of December 2020, he was seeking asylum in the United Kingdom. Uh, Joshua Wong, who I just mentioned, one of the other leaders of the Umbrella Movement, He's in jail right now for promoting illegal gatherings. We're talking about a 24-year-old pro-democracy advocate in jail for the third time in December of 2020. He got sent to prison. You know, the international community responds, right? Nancy Pelosi said that this is appalling and... Uh, Maria Adabar, uh, Germany's foreign ministry spokesperson, said that this is, quote, another building block in a series of worrisome developments that we have seen in connection with human and civil rights in Hong Kong during the last year. And look, that's what you do, right? You, you decry these acts. 
But unless I'm reading the situation all wrong, it seems like the Chinese government can get away with imprisoning young, decent human rights advocates for trumped-up charges with total impunity. I wish it were otherwise. Perhaps one day it will be otherwise. So it's a it's a rough time. Um, interestingly, Boris Johnson, who is somehow the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, he had said in the summer of 2020 that he would allow asylum for 3 million Hong Kongers. Now, uh, I don't know what you know about Boris Johnson. He doesn't always speak the truth or say what he's actually going to do. It seems like an unlikely world where the UK opens its doors to 3 million Hong Kongers. But that's the political position he staked out. Uh, we'll see if he offers asylum to this one Hong Konger, Nathan Law. Because if he does so, it will be egg in the face of Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party. And I'm not entirely convinced that that's what the British government wants. I'm not sure that that's the sword they want to fall on. And you could decide for yourself whether you think that's the sword they should fall on. But I say that to say this. The role of the Chinese Communist Party in Hong Kong, in Tibet, in Xinjiang is clearly changing. And I don't think I'm going out on too much of a limb by saying it's not changing for the better. And I suppose I prefer to speak on behalf of those who are losing their independence, their autonomy, and in the case of Hong Kong, their democracy. So the state of play in Hong Kong is not good. The state of play in Tibet is not good. And the state of play in Xinjiang is downright criminal and inhumane. And I wish it were otherwise. I wish there were a happier ending to this lecture. I hope that peace and freedom and some respectable level of political autonomy somehow falls into the hands of the people of Tibet, Xinjiang, and Hong Kong. But hope alone won't save us. So at the very least, I hope that the Chinese Communist Party can find within itself the dignity to pivot at least a little bit to offer some more space for challenging dialogue between its special autonomous regions and its special economic zones. For if we're going to have Chinese people with universal values, let's just hope that one of those values is dignity. And another is freedom. And with that, I will leave you with the reprise of the guiding questions. Right? I hope I went to some lengths to, if not answer these questions, offer some insight into them. I hope you found deep interest in this talk, and I hope you tune in for the next one. Until then, please take care, stay healthy, and stay sane.